0: Dress: The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common: every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The
1: History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when, of why we wear. We are fashion
0: historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, you asked us listeners and we answered. Listener Maddie was the first of many of you to request an episode on how women historically have dealt with their periods. And of course, we will find a way to tie it into fashion, starting with a quote from one of my all-time favorite fashion movies, Clueless. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when mr hall charges share with two tardy, she responds mr hall i was surfing the crimson wave i had to haul ass to the ladies but before menstruating was a pop culture
1: reference it was and actually still is one of the most taboo topics on the planet which is unfortunate considering it's literally part of a woman's biological makeup
0: Yes, it is. And I might have had a little bit of a different upbringing than most in relation to these sort of intimate topics, because I don't know if you know this, April, but my mom is a gynecologist. Of
1: course I know that.
0: (laughs) And I don't remember when I had my first period, but I do distinctively remember when my mother came to my fifth grade class to discuss the ins and outs of menstruating. But actually, uh, joking aside, I was very lucky to have had such an open dialogue with my mom growing up because I know not everyone has that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I went to public school and uh, they did a pretty good job of teaching us that kind of stuff, too. I I think they may have even started a little bit earlier than that, maybe even fourth grade. And they sent us home with little packets and told us what to do and all that good stuff, so...
0: Yay. Yeah. And to be honest, unlike our listeners, I did not even know that I wanted to know the history of menstrual products until I started researching for this episode. I mean, this is an incredibly fascinating topic and one that is no stranger to our guest today, women's health historian, Dr. Shannon Withycombe. I actually had the pleasure of meeting Shannon while applying to the PhD program at the University of New Mexico, where she is currently an assistant professor. And so once I learned more about her expertise, I knew immediately she just had to come on the show. Yes, Shannon, welcome to the show. Shannon, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here Thank today. Thank you
2: for having me, Cassidy. It's wonderful to be here. I'm very excited and honored.
0: Yeah, and I'm very excited because this is a rare in-studio interview for me. We actually exist in the same state of New Mexico. <laughs> and see each other <laughs> live. So before we delve into the historical management of periods, I would love for you to tell our listeners more about your fascinating profession as a women's Health historian, what led you to this incredible career?
2: Well, I've always been interested in medicine, and I was one of those sort of annoying precocious children who, at the age of six, told everyone I was going to be an oncologist because I thought that was a cool word. <laughs> but uh, and for most of my childhood and adolescence and teen years, I thought the only way to do anything to do with medicine was to become a doctor. So that was my plan. I was a pre med major in college, um, but shortly after college, I realized that wasn't really the route I was really interested in, but was trying to figure out how else I could study or learn more about medicine without sort of going the organic chemistry route. And quite by accident, I discovered there was this field called the history of medicine. And as soon as I found it, I was fascinated by it and decided to try to go to graduate school and learn more about it. And really through my graduate education and through some amazing mentors who were working themselves on women's health and reproduction, I was really opened up to this world of thinking about how women of the past dealt with both sort of everyday health issues, like something like menstruation, um, pregnancy, but also illnesses um, and dealing with primarily um, male doctors and sort of how that dynamic worked out in the past and how medicine and health and healing and ideas of the body manifested in the past. And also through my graduate education and through through these um, particular mentors I had, I also sort of saw The vast potential for, especially in the field of the history of women's health, for also using this historical research and thinking about these things historically, how you can use them for current day issues around women's health and activism.
0: So as you mentioned, your specialty really lies in 19th century women's health, which is a period that I find particularly fascinating because modern science, as we know it, was still very much a developing field at this time. So can you tell us about your recently published work, um, a book entitled Lost Miscarriage in 19th Century America, and what it is about this period in history in particular that you find so important?
2: Yes. Uh, so my book, Lost, looks at the phenomenon of miscarriage in the 19th century. And I really started with very open-ended questions of what, what did miscarriage look like in the, in an era before ultrasounds and an era before pregnancy tests and the, our sort of modern technological and medical-mediated ideas of reproduction. I think this, especially the second half of the 19th century is a fascinating time to study miscarriage for two reasons. One, as you mentioned, this is sort of the rise of medical understandings of the female body, but also of male physicians trying to really get in the business of treating women for a variety of things, including childbirth and miscarriage. And so... Doctors are trying to convince women that that these things are medical. And keep in mind, you know, this is after generations and generations of women doing this on their own or among networks of other women. So this is not an easy sell for most American male physicians to suddenly say, hey, can I come in your house, lift up your skirts and help you birth a baby or help you... Um, clean up after a miscarriage. So that is sort of one of the things that happening. Although for me, what is much more interesting is how women themselves were understanding miscarriage at this time. So all of my work, I do a lot of um, research trying to access women's personal writings about a variety of health topics. So for the book, I looked at women's letters and diaries and how they describe their own miscarriage experiences. And one of the reasons why this time period, I think is, is especially compelling, is that this is a time where on one hand, Um, fertility rates were falling in the United States. And that's not necessarily on its own unique because this is a trend that has been happening at least since 1750 to 2000, sort of a a continual uh, decrease in family size with a few blips here and there, such as um, post-World War II. But what's sort of more compelling about that fall in fertility rate, and we're talking about from about 1850, the family size is about a little over five children per family average. And by 1900, it's just about three and a half. So it's a pretty precipitous drop in family size over a 50-year period. But what's sort of more compelling about that drop is this is at the same time when there are a range of state and federal laws being passed that outlawed abortion and birth control. So Even in the face of all these restrictions, it's harder and harder for women to limit their family size. They are doing it in larger and larger numbers, which tells me that women are increasingly interested in having smaller family size and maybe even desperate to have smaller family sizes. And so within that context, I found very interesting and surprising revelations of women who have nine children, you know, their youngest child is nine months old. They have a miscarriage and they're overjoyed or they are newly married, they feel like they have very little in terms of economic resources, um, very depressed when they get pregnant, they have a miscarriage, they're super happy. Um, So those were the sorts of findings that I had that I was discovering in the archives that at first surprised me. But then when I thought more about the sort of world they're living in, where they don't have a lot of power and control over their fertility, that creates an, an environment where having a miscarriage can be a great thing.
0: Yeah. And I think your book is so incredibly special because you bring those women's voices to the fore of your research. And that could not have been an easy task. You must have spent a lot of time looking for these accounts because this is not something I don't think women would have openly spoken about, right?
2: Well, they did actually. And that was one of my questions was how much, because when I first got involved in this project, I was coming from sort of questions of the late 20, early 21st century, where we live in this this culture where there is a lot of silence around miscarriage. Women don't openly discuss their miscarriage when they happen. There is a sort of a lot of confusion about, well, am I supposed to tell my boss that that's the reason why I'm staying home today? Or how do I tell my family? Is this a point of grief? Um, And we're still, I think, trying to figure that out. And so I was wondering, is this a culture of silence that sort of comes from a time when um, having babies was so integral to American femininity that women would have um, kept silent because it would have been seen as shameful or sort of a failure in their femininity. That was sort of my assumption going in. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to find that wasn't the case. I didn't find any women who talked about feeling shame, ashamed or feeling like they were a failure for having a miscarriage. Um, so that was sort of uh, fascinating and exciting. But I also seemed, I, I noticed that women were talking about it very openly. That doesn't mean these sources were super easy to find, yes. however. <laughs> um, this still means that for most, of them, I would start with, you know, a large collection of letters or, you know, a woman's diary that spans 20 years and be flipping it page by page. I had some Mm -hmm. sort of strategies for narrowing in on particular years. So if I knew she had a successful pregnancy, I would not, I would sort of skip over that year. Or, you know, if there seemed to be, she had sort of three children in a row and then there was a space of five years before she had another two children, I would sort of spend more time in that five years thinking there was something happening. But yeah, it was a sort of a lot of digging. Luckily, it was digging that I loved. So it turns out I love this sort of social history where you're, I'm literally just immersing myself in these women's lives and I'm reading page after page of, you know, going to visit neighbors or so-and-so is sick or I'm, you know, arguing with my mother. That's the kind of stuff I really like. I love sort of learning about just women's everyday lives in the past. And so... On one hand, it, it was a, it was sort of a slog to go through all these things, but on the other hand, it was stuff that I really enjoyed, and I probably could have been a little bit faster in finding those sources, <laughs> but I was having a good time. So,
0: and you're actually working on a second book, which is exploring the development of prenatal healthcare in the 20th mm-hmm. century. Um, are you taking a similar approach to to that?
2: Topic? Yes, I am. I, I'm ho- I'm hoping to access women's voices and their personal experiences as much as possible. So relying on things again, like um, letters and diaries, but also one of the phenomena I'm, I'm going to be researching is the rise of prenatal health clinics. So in a variety of cities and towns across the United States, women are organizing with some male physicians help, but it's a lot of sort of public health nursing and lay women who are organizing prenatal health care clinics in the early 20th century. And I'm hoping also through that, Uh, patient records and sort of discussions by the people who are running the clinic that I can also access women who are coming to these clinics. Um, One of the difficulties in doing the kind of research I do where I want to get women writing about their own experiences is which women's records do we have? Which women were sort of deemed important enough to save their papers by a family or to donate them to an archive? And it tends to be middle-class white women is sort of the largest um, group of that. So as a historian, I have to become, I have to be somewhat creative in accessing other women's voices because I absolutely do want to you know, know sort of how African-American women are interacting with early prenatal care. And I have some indications that they're being left out of a lot of the discussions about early prenatal care. Same thing for Native American women and Hispanic women.
0: Yeah, it's really important to expand the narrative beyond the traditional Eurocentric white Absolutely. woman narrative Absolutely. that is so um, common in all history. Mm-hmm. So yes. oh, thank you for that. And we'll look forward to that book. Thanks. I would be curious, too, to see if the rise of maternity wear kind of coincides similarly with the rise of, of maternity health care in the 20th century.
2: Yeah, and I'm interested in that as well. I mean, there is uh, there is some maternity wear, as probably you know, in the 19th century, there, there um, are are certainly ads for maternity corsets and those sorts of things. Um, but probably most women are just adjusting their clothing at home, doing their own um, alterations. But I think that the sort of market, the consumer market for right. the pregnant woman, I think is something that only really takes hold after probably the 1930s, 1940s, because this is a time when women are much more assured that every pregnancy will result in a live birth. Um, and so I think for women in the nineteenth century, that's not the case for every pregnancy. You know, right. rates of miscarriage are probably were probably a little bit higher, even though they're they're quite high today, and we need to remember that. um, but rates of still stillbirth were much higher. Um so I think that sort of celebration of a pregnancy through things like maternity wear and other mm-hmm. products that were being sold is something that sort of takes place after the advent of prenatal care and after the sort of, at least medical narrative that all pregnancies should be successful.
0: Right. And actually, the development of the medical field throughout the 19th century, similarly, we see the development of menstrual products for women, which we are going to delve into Mm -hmm. in a minute. But so like miscarriage, menstruation, the word coming from the Latin word menses or month, has been stigmatized and even mythologized for thousands of years in cultures around the globe. There are the menstrual huts in Nepal, for instance, where women have historically and even to this day been sent to while menstruating because they're believed to be unclean during this period. The Jewish Torah similarly believes during menstruation a woman becomes ritually impure and she and her husband must refrain from sexual relations during this period. And then conversely, you have the Cherokee people who believe in women's separation during her period because she wields this incredible amount of power. And, you know, it was really interesting to research how much mythology surrounds the menstruation throughout history. You have the first century Roman philosopher, Pliny the Elder, who similarly espoused in his book, Natural History. And I'm just going to read a couple things from excerpts from this this book. So he writes, for in the first place, hailstorms they say whirlwinds and lightning even will be scared away by a woman uncovering her body while her monthly courses are upon her. <laughs> so uh, he also says, I have to state in addition that bees, it is a well-known fact, will forsake their hives if touched by a menstruous woman. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, that linen boiling in the cauldron will turn black, that the edge of a razor will become blunted. So, I mean... Shannon, I had no idea that we carried so much power. (laughs) Yes, yes. You should really wield it every month. (laughs) But, you know, in Western society in particular, menstruation has repeatedly been cited as men, not as proof of women's power, but of their inherent weakness and thus their inferiority. So as a 19th century historian, Shannon, I imagine that you encounter this sort of rhetoric quite often, especially when you put it within the context of things like the women's suffrage movement and women's fight for equality during this period.
2: Yes, uh, that's another, to me, fascinating part of the second half of the 19th century is that This is a time period for a variety of reasons, including industrialism, urbanization, the rise of the middle class, where women are entering public spaces in numbers and in a way they hadn't previously in the U.S. And so some of this is women entering higher education. Some of this is women entering the workforce, although at this time it's primarily lower class women who are entering things like factory jobs and mill jobs. Um, Some of this is women's activism. So taking to the streets for something like suffragism or temperance movements or other um, sort of uh, seen as moral movements. Of the time. Um, and some of this is shopping. So as part of the industrial revolution and urbanization that's happening in the latter half of the 19th century, more and more families have to look outside of the home for the goods that they previously would have, you know, made if they were living in a rural setting. So, you know, things like food, clothing, all those sorts of things. So more urban families have to go shopping. And women are doing a lot of the household shopping, not surprisingly. So women are sort of being, uh, are entering these spaces that were primarily male spaces before, and they're also sort of just more visible in the public uh, space, in the public eye. And for many men, including physicians, but other sort of white elite males in positions of power or positions of, or professional positions, this is frightening this is not a good thing, right. and uh, this is going to lead to the downfall of the country. This is going to lead to you know a, a future where our children have no morals because they're not being taught them by their mothers at home, these sorts of things. Unfortunately, arguments that are still being used today. And one of the tools that a lot of these men are using in the late 19th century is to talk about the biological determinism of a woman's body. So one example of this that I use in my teaching that is one of my favorites is a Harvard physician by the name of Edward Clark who writes a book called um, Sex and Education. And it's a very interesting sort of rhetorical uh, device that he uses because he doesn't sort of say women aren't smart enough to um, go into higher education or they're inferior to men. Because one of the things we need to realize is he's he needs to cater to upper and middle class uh, Bostonian families who might be interested in sending their children to school or might you know, have some of the sort of slightly more progressive ideals of the late 19th century. Um, so he's 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 very careful not to sort of say, oh, I'm not saying that you're not good enough for education. But instead he uses what he, he sees as this very unarguable biological argument, an objective biological argument by saying, look, everybody knows a woman's body menstruates. That's a biological fact. We can't avoid that. You can't get rid of that. But then he constructs the sort of what happens in a woman's body during menstruation and and in order to menstruate as a reason why she cannot do something like um go to college. So he talks a lot about he goes into detail about sort of the anatomy, where the, the uterus is, what it's connected to, and talks about gravity and sort of, you know, how much blood is going to flow when you're standing up versus sitting down. And it turns up standing up is something he really hooks onto, which I think also gives us an idea of what higher education looked like in the 19th century because he's very concerned with how much standing that women have to do when they go to college. And so I think well, they're so fragile. Yes, yes. And unlike today, I think a, a college education in the 19th century does include a lot of sort of standing up and reciting things that you're learning rather than the sort of more passive college student of today who sits for <laughs> most of the day. So, yeah, he talks a lot about sort of, you know, if you go and you stand up all day long while you're menstruating, you're going to get weak, you're going to get sick, and the sort of horrors of all horrors is you will become infertile. And so he has all these, he has these examples where he says, you know, I had this one patient. She was so, she was, you know, so robust, so healthy, so pink and glowing. And then she went off to college and came back and was just, you know, so ill. She could was so listless. She had no energy. She couldn't get out of bed and sort of list all these dangers of doing this sort of education. One thing to note, of course, is that, the population that Clark is interested in is not the women who are on their feet doing factory work at this time. Because there's plenty of women who are on their feet doing other (laughs) things, right? He's not interested in them. He's interested in the sort of, to him, right, the moral Mm -hmm. future of this country, which is Mm -hmm. educated or middle-class white women native-born white women. And so, and to him, the biggest threat is that they're trying to go off to college. So menstruation gets used in that way, right? It's taking that during menstruation, it's sort of a biological, and I'm putting that in quotes because this is how um, physicians at the time are using the word biological. So biological uh, fact that, you know, this bleeding is taking away vitality from other parts of the body. And if you don't rest properly, if you don't sort of give into your menstruation, then all these horrible things are going to happen to your health.
0: Right. And to just give dress listeners an example of this pervasive rhetoric, I wanted to share this little snippet from a speech that was given by a British anthropologist and writer, James McGregor Allen, who addressed the Anthropological Society of London in 1869. So he's discussing menstrual periods and he says, Much of the inconsequent conduct of women, their petulance, caprice, and irritability may be traced directly to this cause. It is not improbable that instances of feminine cruelty, which startle us as so inconsistent with the normal gentleness of the sex, are attributable to mental excitement caused by this periodical illness. In intellectual labor, man has surpassed, does now, and always will surpass women for the obvious reason that nature does not periodically interrupt his thought and application." So, you know, just one more reason why women should not have jobs, should not vote, should not have property, should not be able to go to school. The list mm-hmm. goes on mm-hmm. and on and on. And so, next, we are going to turn our attention to how women have historically managed their periods. And we will do that right after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. So, Shannon, mass-marketed disposable pads and the tampon industry did not come into their own until the early 20th century. But prior to these commercially available products, what were women using to manage their menstruation?
2: For the large part, whatever they had at hand um, historically. So certainly in the United States, say, you know, 200 years before the turn of the 20th century, women were probably using rags, cotton, any sort of fabric that they had around the house that Mm Uh, maybe wasn't useful for what it was originally intended, a dress or something else, but was still able to absorb liquid. So Mm -hmm. they would use it, maybe roll it up, fold it and use it um, sort of as a pad in that respect. Um, One thing to note, however, when we're thinking about what women are using to absorb menstrual blood is, this is also for up until the early 20th century, this is a time when underwear doesn't exist in the way we think of it today. Right. So most of what women are wearing, I'm sure you can talk way more length than I can, but <laughs> my limited understanding is is that most of what women are wearing under their dresses is, you know, further layers of petticoats. By the 19th century, women are wearing pants. Um, so which would essentially have been sort of, you know, sort of uh, maybe knee length, maybe a little bit longer, thin garment that was pants, but... If you think about going to the bathroom in all of those petticoats, 19th century Victorian era, Mm -hmm. um, petticoats, skirts, cages that are underneath, it's basically impossible to reach under to pull underwear down to go to the bathroom. And so all of these were crotchless. Mm -hmm. So there would be a slit in the fabric from sort of the front of the pubis all the way up the back to above the butt crack. So there's no place to really attach something if you wanted to catch menstrual blood. So women... Uh, we have, you know, evidence that women used a variety of methods. So maybe there have been some, um, some sort of creative pinning of um, cotton to the pants. Maybe you just take a string or some other sort of length of fabric tied around your waist and then attach the pad to that. So really, just sort of women using their own ingenuity um, and practicality, and sort of what do they have at hand that that would work um, to absorb the blood and to stay in place as they're going about their daily activities.
0: Right, and um, I did a little bit of research too, and. and pe- as far back as the ancient Egyptians, they have evidence of papyrus tampons. I actually found it really amusing that Ob uh, was using this fact to in their advertisements in the 20th <laughs> century. They they said this is what a 4,000 year old invention looks like today. <laughs> ah. Um, Roman women used sheep's wool. Indonesian and Hawaiian women used various forms of vegetation. So, And then a lot of women used homemade reusable pads and sanitary napkins. Mm -hmm. So something that you would essentially wash out Mm -hmm. and reuse until Mm -hmm. you couldn't use it anymore. Mm -hmm. There's actually a really great website called mum.org, which you kind of turned me on to. It's for the museum administration. And the museum administration was actually a museum, a real museum from 94 to 98. And it now exists solely online. And I think the website is still from the 90s. So it's a little
2: hard to navigate. (laughs) It seems a little clunky the first time you look at it.
0: But once you get into it, there is so much research on there. It's kind Mm -hmm. of incredible, as Mm -hmm. well as pictures of products, including the curator has knitted Norwegian reusable pads on there. And then there's also, I found this pretty charming, turn-of-the-century cloth pads that belong to this Italian countess. And they were embroidered. And I think the the person who wrote the article said, you know, she would just be mortified knowing that we were looking yes, at her yeah. very personal um, embroidered, you know, cloth pads, but they're not embroidered, you know, as sentimental value. They're embroidered because women would send these out to the community laundry, mm-hmm. and that's the only way you knew how to get your laundry back. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really, really interesting. So mum.org, that's M-U-M.org. Trust listeners, if you have an afternoon to kind of go down a rabbit hole, I suggest checking it out. So can you talk about the shift that starts to happen in the discussion of menstrual hygiene in the 19th century? Because this is really important. And surely it's no coincidence that as the science surrounding women's biology develops, so too does the first menstrual hygiene products.
2: Yes. So I think there's a couple things that are happening. It's not just the the scientific and the sort of medical interest in women's bodies, but certainly that is a large part of it. As I talked about before, um, doctors are getting more and more involved in talking about how potentially dangerous menstruation can be if you don't take proper care of yourself in terms Mm -hmm. of rest, in terms of bathing, in terms of uh, food. Um, So there's also a lot of recommendations on the kinds of foods you should and should not be eating when you're um, menstruating. And there's actually a very similar list to the um, recommendations about what you should and shouldn't eat during pregnancy. And unlike today, it's not about caffeine and alcohol. It's about what they consider stimulating things. So, you know, cut down on your meat and other hot foods. Um, are things you're not supposed to eat when you're menstruate and you're pregnant. Hmm. And in fact, if you are used to drinking alcohol, you should keep drinking alcohol is, is one of the common <laughs> advice given during a pregnancy. So yeah, some of this is, is doctors who are getting involved. Um, this is a time period where gynecology is really coming to its own as a profession. It starts in the early part of the 1800s, but is gaining more, especially American gynecology, is gaining a lot of international attention. Um, and so there is sort of Interest by physicians who are trying to build a strong profession, and what what else can we get involved in? And, and menstruation is one of them. But in terms of sort of the products, a lot of the growth in the product market is due to industrialization and the growth of the commercial market in the late nineteenth century. So, you know, if you if you do research and if you look at things like patents that are being um, applied for in the late 19th century. There's hundreds and hundreds that are for menstrual products. Um, but one thing to note about them is they're not relying on any sort of new technology. They're basically doing the same thing that women had probably been doing for hundreds of years, which is using things like cotton or linen or other fabrics and sort of constructing it in a manner that it would fit between the legs and stay there and absorb menstrual blood. The only sort of new technological advance that people are trying really hard to make into a menstrual product is rubber. Uh, Oh, they're trying so hard. They want to. Yeah, so. for so many <laughs> decades and we'll get yes. into more of that. Um, <laughs> so the vulcanization of rubber is developed in the 1840s and very quickly manufacturers see rubber is super practical for all sorts of things, right? It's great for wheels, it's great for shoes, it's great for raincoats um, and becomes fairly profitable. And so manufacturers are looking for other things to make out of rubber. And so there's a lot of patents that are filed for uh, uses of rubber as, as menstrual products. But I think because both there is this new ability to make things in large quantities because of the industrial revolution but also there is a growing market for having commercially made products versus homemade products. So as I mentioned in that in that time period women are leaving the house, going outside into public spaces. And they are also because of urbanization and industrialization, they also there are more women who are being separated from their extended families, right? So they're losing that sort of knowledge that would have been passed down from their mothers or grandmothers on how to make these things at home. Um, So women who are living in urban areas, they have less space, they have less time, um, and they might have that extra quarter to spend on something like a belt um, a sanitary belt or sanitary suspenders rather than making their own. One thing to note about also about all of these things, and we'll talk more about this when we get to sort of what happens in the early 20th century, is keep in mind this is not just sort of maybe something you make at home, but also the cleaning of these sorts of pads, right? So a lot of, it was sort of common practice that basically at the end of the day, you take all the pads, and we're talking about just basic cotton. We're not talking about sort of modern pads that will last eight to 12 hours, right? right. These are probably ones that women are changing every couple hours. So you sort of take all the, the rags that you use that day and you put them in a pot of water to soak overnight and then you might ha- be able to wash them the next day or whenever you have the free time. So they're very sort of time consuming. And also if you're, you know, you've moved to the city and you're living in a boarding house where you're sharing a small room with four other working girls, you might not be quite as interested in having uh, your bloody rags just out in open soaking in the same way. So there's also a change in sort of women's lifestyles that, create a market for these commercially created products as well. I think it's
0: really interesting, too, that there was actually this obstetrician and gynecologist, Edward Tilt, who was really in the middle of the 19th century, was one of the first that really connected menstrual hygiene to actually what women wore on their bodies. And so there's this scholar... Alia Al-Khalidi, who writes about the developing discourses that surrounded menstrual etiquette in the mid-19th century in this fantastic article called Emergent Technologies and Menstrual Paraphernalia in Mid-19th Century Britain. And she talks about Tilt and his work, which was this 1852 a treatise entitled Elements of Health and Principles of Female Hygiene. And she talks about how important it is because for the first time, he's really placing women's clothing. Mm-hmm. at the center of hygienic management and while he does not go as far to propose actual products for this management he he his work made this link between this what she calls the functional duality of menstrual hygiene and what women are wearing for the first time. So she says this provided a framework for the subsequent investigation of emergent forms of menstrual paraphernalia and the inceptions of new technologies for the containment of menstrual discharge in the 19th century. So when you're talking about these sanitary belts, people are thinking about how they're going to be worn under women's clothing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really helps in the development Mm -hmm. as well.
2: And I I think clothing becomes... A new concern, both for men and women, women's clothing, because like I said, women are going into these public spaces and they have this new visibility. And so as a woman, if you're mostly staying at home, you're staying maybe around the family farm, you're not going to be thinking as much about, oh, am I staining my clothing? How much is my blood, you know, my menstrual blood coming out and, and visible on my skirt? But if you're going out into public... You know, if you're going to a new department store, if you're going out uh, marching in the streets, if you're even just going to a factory work where hundreds of people are going to see you, it's going to be much more of a concern about how to contain uh, your menstruation and have it and have the clothing that's sort of going to help you hide it um, because that is becoming increasingly important to women, but also to men who don't want to see it, right? Right.
0: Right, and I can imagine that this could be incredibly debilitating to a woman yes. during this period. If you don't know your period's coming and you suddenly get it yes. and you're out, yes, you know what do you do?
2: <laughs> yes, I mean I think probably if you're in, uh, you know, a situation where there are other women around, you do the same thing you do today, right? You start sort of quietly asking, "Do you have anything <laughs> that you can help me with? Do you have any potentially? You know, it's something that if you think you're at all close to that time, you would carry a rag around mm-hmm. with you in case. Um, one thing though, I think we do need to. To recognize about women, especially in the 19th century, menstruating is we also need to realize that they're menstruating a lot less than we do today. So if we look at sort of the life, life course of the average woman in the 19th century, she most likely doesn't start menstruating until her late teens. She gets married earlier. She starts having children much earlier. She has many more children and she nurses those children for a long time and breastfeeding, breastfeeding helps to um, prolong the space between menstruation, so, which I'll also helps you space out your children. So it's quite plausible that there are women out there who would go in a 10-year period of time and only have six or seven periods that entire time. Um, so that's one thing we need to sort of remember is it's not... We we live in a modern world where sort of you're expected to have a period every month and you're expected to have that for a long, long time because you're not going to... Most women are not having that many children. Um, the other thing to note is that there are other things that affect your uh, menstruation and how it regular it is, including both um, acute and chronic illness and malnutrition. And those are both fairly high for 19th century women, especially compared to today. So there are sort of lots of reasons why women were not menstruating. So while we do need to be thinking about sort of, yes, there might be a surprise period when you're out on the town. Also, the likelihood of that happening is going to not be that high for any given woman because she might be in the midst of nursing a child pregnant recovering from an illness or just not have nutritional standards that are high enough to have to provide regular uh, menstruation for her.
0: That's so, so interesting. So now we're going to start talking. We've done a little bit, but now we're (laughs) going to start talking about all these fascinating products that emerged to help women with menstruation. So you mentioned them a little bit, but let's talk sanitary belts. Mm -hmm. What were they and why were they so innovative?
2: So sanitary belts, I think, are again, one of those things that probably women are sort of mocking up to get uh, on their own at home, but by at least probably some uh, around the 1850s, 1860s become commercially available. One of the things I think is very interesting is there's Again, if you look at things like patents, there's a range of products that people are trying out and trying to enter into the market. However, sanitary belts seem to, if we look at advertisements, if we look at things like the Sears Robot Catalog and what's available... Sanitary belts seem to be the most popular and they're commonly used really up until the 1970s. So they did, they have not been out of common usage for all that yep, long. Asked my mom about it. Exactly. She definitely wore yes. one in the 60s. I'm sure there's some <laughs> listeners right now who are remembering the days of the sanitary belt. Um, so the sanitary belt is uh, essentially a strip of fabric, eventually elastic that you would put around, uh, literally a belt that you would put around your waist or maybe your hips depending on what felt was more comfortable for you. And then in the front and the back, there would be sort of these fabric tabs that dangle down. And throughout the 19th century, you uh, would use safety pins to then pin your fabric reusable washable pad between them eventually but in the 20th century a lot of them come with snaps so that you can sort of end reusable pads or disposable pads that you would sort of snap in but the idea again because certainly throughout the 19th century is that you would put them over your pants because again remember the pants have that sort of slit in the crotch Mm -hmm. and then it would sort of fit there is also a variety of uh, designs for what happened in the back of the sanitary belt so some of them did there was some attempt by some of them I've seen where they try to have sort of a Fabric panels, So they would be more like modern underwear, but a lot of them tended to be more of a strip of fabric that would go between your butt cheeks. So the... The discomfort of thong underwear is not as new of a phenomenon <laughs> as we might think, because certainly the sanitary for a lot of women, it would be similar to wearing a thong, a very thick actually thong, yes. Yeah.
0: And when you say pants, you're talking about the pantaloons, essentially dress listeners that you would have worn before modern underwear. Yes,
2: exactly. The, those sorts of, I mean, it, it, when you look at images of them, and you can Google and find them fairly easily, they look sort of like you know capri length exactly. pajama <laughs> pants that have an open crotch, essentially.
0: Yeah. And something really interesting about that that we didn't talk about was Edward Tilt wrote about how women's pantaloons, because women putting pants on for the first time in the 19th century, even though it was under her clothing, was still seen as this this trespassing of these very specific gender barriers. And so he made a really big point of saying, while he promoted women wearing pantaloons and bloomers, you know, after Amelia Bloomer, we had done an episode on that. But they had to be knee length because if you could even remotely see them, that was just not okay. So Yeah,
2: just, there's a lot of tension about sort of covering the leg, both mm-hmm. for health reasons, but also for modesty. But also at the same time, you can't ever let anyone know that you're, you're covering your leg in this way through pants. Exactly.
0: So. so, I mean, like you said, there's so many interesting patents out there. I think one of the first was 1859, Owen's Minstrel Receive or Trust which was essentially these like, I think they were like these bol- inflatable pillows that would catch the
2: blood. Yeah, it, it, some of <laughs> these patents are sort of difficult to read. My Yeah, my understanding of that one is, yes, there they, definitely is sort of these inflatable balloon type things. And then in between, you're supposed to put, I think, the fabric. And my understanding of that is 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 a comfort thing. So somehow we need to, because there's other patents that I am really flabbergasted by. Who would think this comfortable? So there is one and I couldn't find, I looked all over to figure out sort of what material it was made out of. But it's basically it's it builds itself as a trough, like a feeding trough that you would put a give to a horse. So it's this sort of stiff cup that's curved a little bit. And my, of course instantly I'm like, how do you sit in it? How do you even walk with this thing between your legs? Um, so I think the inflatable is about sort of, you know, comfort. You can still, you know, it'll give a little bit between your thighs, and maybe you can sit in it, but there's yeah. a lot out there.
0: And it's definitely worth worth notating that most of these patents were designed by men who would have had no clue
2: what it was like. (laughs) Yes. Whose interest seems to be primarily about catching that blood, making sure that that blood sort of never reaches the light of day so that no one else would see it uh, rather than something like comfort and usability. Exactly.
0: So at the dawn of the 20th century, women were overwhelmingly still using homemade reusable sanitary pads, but this was all about to change, and we are going to hear all about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. Shannon, can you tell us about Kotex and its unlikely World War I origin story, but also why the advent of the disposable pad was so significant in the history of women's health?
2: Yes. So during World War I, a company called the Cellucot Cotton Company developed a new type of bandage that was very uh, highly absorbent and thinner than a lot of bandages. And during World War I, there was a lot of concern or interest in finding new ways to prevent disease because the U.S. Army was very used to, by this time, losing more soldiers to disease than to combat injuries. Um, And so the idea that this is a disposable bandage was very appealing to the Army because that would cut down uh, the passage of germs and passage of disease. So these were seen as, as highly successful during the war. After the war, The company was sort of looking around for, okay, what else can we use this for? We need a new market now that the army's not buying them up in mass quantities. And they had heard that one of the other usages of this of these bandages during the war was by World War One nurses who were using them during menstruation and found them to be very useful and great. And as we talked about, the reusable homemade pads were probably had to be changed many times, but these would be last longer and they were thinner. And so women liked them. So the, the company decided to launch a new product of disposable sanitary napkins is what they were calling them in the beginning. So by 1921, Cotex was released and um, began to be advertised uh, in women's magazines. One of the interesting things, so um, the historian Roseanne Manziak has done um, some interesting work looking at the advertisement of Cotex. And one of the things I love about it is the first couple ads that Kotex put out, they really are trying to push this idea that this is technology that was developed for our boys and it brought them home safely. And so (laughs) there's all these, there's these ads where it's images of sort of four injured soldiers and then there's a nurse in the middle. And very quickly, I think they realize that if you're trying to appeal to women, having an ad full of men, full of soldiers, is maybe not the way to do it. Um, So they sort of revamp their ad campaign and instead they start advertising Kotex as something for the modern woman, but also something For many uh, advertisers, especially in the early 20th century, one of the sort of key aspects of creating an advertising campaign is you have to create a problem so this product can solve. And so one of the things that Kotex does is it not only releases this new product, but it also, through their massive ad campaign, it really creates menstruation as a modern problem that needs to be solved for the modern woman. And so a lot of the sort of uh, ideas and images and rhetoric around why Kotex is necessary for the modern women, we actually can still see today, I think, in modern menstruation products advertising. So the idea that this is some this is going to help you hide it so that nobody knows that you're menstruation. One of my favorite early Kotex ads is actually a woman. It, the The implication is that she wants to hide this even from her laundress, who is another woman, but somehow that sort of, <laughs> she doesn't even want her laundress to know when she's right. menstruating. And this is, she can now do that with yeah. disposable pads, right? Rather than having to send her bloody pads out to the laundress. So there's a lot of sort of talk about how menstruation needs to be hidden and also they're relying on something that helps them during the war. The Cellucot Company also relies on this idea that a disposable pad is more sanitary and the sort of dirtiness of menstruation you can get rid of very quickly and you're not reusing it over and over again.
0: Yeah, and something that Manziak actually writes about is how... Feminine hygiene advertising. This is a quote specifically co-ops. The discourse of high fashion and conspicuous consumption, selling its audience a new self along with the commodity. And as I was looking through the history of Cotex ads, this is something they carry through in their advertising mm-hmm. all the way into the 1960s, mm-hmm. where they really were, they really merged menstrual products with this modern, fashionable, haute, fashionable, yes. model-like woman. Yes, right, and so. It's really interesting. There's a 1927 ad that says, a risk women have learned never again to take. Filmy frocks and gowns are worn without a second's thought or fear. The woman of today meets every day unhandicapped. And then there's this 1941 ad, Boys Clothes Parties Dates It's along the top of it. And it's a young woman. And they say, you've got plenty on your mind besides musty old history dates and what X plus Y equals frivolous. No, they all add up to being attractive. (laughs) And being attractive helps achieve success and happiness. Only do remember this, to have friends, beau, and good times. And then this is in quotes, and I love it. Or to hold a job and get ahead in the world. (laughs) (laughs) You must be attractive and poised regardless of what day of the month it is. And then in the 50s, you actually see fashion designers being named in ads. So wow. You know that kind of tabooness is almost gone by the fifties, and companies like Nettie Rosenstein are advertising in these minstrel mm-hmm. uh, campaigns. So, so it's yeah. really, really fascinating to see yeah. the progression over the years.
2: Yeah, and I mean, if you think just about the time when Kotex is being released, right? This is the nineteen twenties. This is a time when not only fashion is completely changing for women, right? So that. um you no longer have all these layers so that you can hide something bulky underneath. You have very thin fabrics. You have very straight lines. And so the thinner the pad can be, the Mm -hmm. better. Um, But also women's activities are changing too. Um, So they're being more active. They're doing, I mean, just from sort of dance styles, something like the sort of 1920s, um, Charleston and other dances, but also other activities, you know, sporting activities for women are increasing. They're riding bicycles. They're certainly in the public sphere in in, in much greater numbers than they were before. So having that sort of uh, language and that rhetoric or that selling point of this being discreet and able to hide is, is becoming more and more important to women.
0: Right. And so because menstruation has been such a taboo subject, there are really not a lot of firsthand accounts about what it was like for women throughout uh, history to manage their periods. And that's why it's really cool that there's this 1927 report by the psychologist Lillian Gilbreth for Johnson & Johnson, who had this modest sanitary napkins. So who was Dr. Gilbreth and why was her report so groundbreaking?
2: So uh, Dr. Gilbreth is a fascinating woman. So she gets a PhD in applied psychology. In the midst of getting this PhD, she also has 13 children, 11 of whom survived to adulthood. I don't know how she does it. But she becomes very interested in not just applied psychology, but sort of how you can use psychology to look at things like industrial organization. And her and her husband sort of set up this company that becomes uh, a consulting company to a variety of industrial organizations, companies like Johnson & Johnson, who hire them to do surveys and stuff. So Johnson & Johnson hires her and her husband to do a survey on uh, sort of what is what is the usage of disposable pads today, and what do women want? How would women want them improved? One of the interesting things I find about the survey is from the very beginning, whether it, it's coming from um, Gilbreth herself or coming from Johnson and Johnson, but they decide that sort of the market for. Disposable pads at this time is women who have to leave the home. So they uh, mostly target college women, mm-hmm. but they also car- target some professional women and high school girls. But I, I, th- I find it interesting that sort of at this point, the understanding is sort of the woman who stays in her home most of the day as a homemaker raising children is not interested in disposable pads. She's right. got her homemade pads, and that and we're not even we don't think that's an even a possible market. So she does this survey, and she, gets a lot of useful, I think, information for Johnson & Johnson in terms of size of pad. Yeah, over and a thousand material. women. Yes. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's around a thousand that she gets. Um, and one of the messages she gets or one of the sort of results she gets back from the survey is that most women say that st- homemade is still best. But if you're in a situation where either making the homemade one, cleaning the homemade one isn't working out, so you have limited space, limited time, then that's when I would go and do a disposable one. Um, and which sort of uh, matches what they thought was going to be the market. Although keep in mind, they're not talking to the women who are at home all the time who might have wanted a disposable <laughs> pad as much, right? They also might say, I would love to not have to spend hours washing these pads all the time.
0: Yeah, and I found it really interesting because they came to the conclusion that all belts that were on the market were clumsy and unsuited to use yes. by the college graduate. Yes. So it really provides a lot of insight into the products that were on the market, including yes. a ton of rubber products. Yeah, so we have rubber aprons. These are not popular with the wearers as they slip and twist and tear easily. They are objectionable to many because of the rubber odor. They do not launder successfully as they fade or turn yellow. And these aprons are essentially like a rubber apron that you mm-hmm. would tie around your body, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and
2: I think it's it's meant to protect your clothing so you mm-hmm. don't sort of bleed on your clothing. Exactly. But it obviously doesn't something that catches or absorbs the blood. So in addition, you're also wearing the belt and the pad. Um, Yes.
0: And then there was rubber bloomers, which just sounds horrendously awful.
2: I don't know who's buying those.
0: She says these are not only unpopular, but are unhealthful as they become hot and stop ventilation. There's rubber step-ins, which are apparently preferable to aprons and bloomers, but still a nuisance. Um, And then one of the other conclusions they had was that powders and deodorants are a personal preference, um, but are used quite often by women. And... Yeah, so not a great period still. No. Pun intended or not. (laughs) For women in the 1920s. -hmm. So in the 1930s, Gertrude Schultz Tenderick added her Tampax tampons to the mix as an alternative to sanitary pads. So they were billed as, "'Besides being positively invisible under the sheerest and closest fitting gown, there is no need for you to be inconvenienced by pads, pins, or belts ever again. Chafing and irritation are entirely eliminated.'" And while women would only continue to be offered more and more choices in menstrual management in the ensuing years, it was not until the 1970s that an alternative to the suspension belt was finally introduced and found widespread acceptance. So please tell us about the first adhesive pads
2: and why they were such a game changer. Well, to me, the interesting part is that it takes so long. I mean, apart from the technology that needs to be developed. But so, yeah, 1969 is when Stay Free first releases the ad- adhesive pad. And one thing to add to the story that we haven't quite talked about is that so modern underwear uh, really hits the market starting in the 1920s in terms of closed crotch and then sort of briefs by Fitted the 1930s. to the body, yeah. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need a belt anymore because you now have a crotch that you could attach something to. However, belts are still in wide usage up until the 1970s, until we get uh, Stay Free and then other companies who are releasing adhesive pads. And one of the things I find interesting is that this is not because women are not sitting around thinking, I hate this belt. I wish there was something better. I mean, all you have to do is sort of imagine an episode of Mad Men, right? Think of this the, this, the clothing, the really tight pencil skirts, and then think about trying to fit a sanitary belt under that. Um, or think about, you know, the rise of the bikini or the mini skirts in the late 1960s, right? There's a lot of fashion changes where women, I'm sure, are looking at these fashions thinking, okay, well, I know when I can't wear this particular outfit is when I have to wear my belt Um, and for and if I want to sort of throw out one um, resource for listeners who if you want to get a a very humorous but I still think somewhat accurate uh, understanding of what the belt looks like SNL actually did um, a spoof commercial back when um, <laughs> Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were on SNL called Cotex Classic. So just Google SNL to Kotex oh, Classic. Doing that and uh, you can see, and it, it's it's very funny, but you can see that, yes, I mean, these belts are high, right? They stick out of your clothes, modern clothes. So I think it's really the, the fact that it takes so long to come up with an alternative is not it has nothing to do with women's interest in an alternative. I think women are I hate belts. And and I'm sure I would love to hear, you know, maybe from some listeners commenting on how they felt about their own belts. I think it really says instead that the the gender dynamic of these corporations, of industrial engineers, of domestic engineers and and so forth, of you know, who are men who are not necessarily thinking, oh, here's an obvious product that needs to be improved upon. Or if a woman does come to, you know, head of a corporation saying, can you make this a little bit better? They don't see it as important. They don't see it as profitable. Um, and so I think it says much more about the sort of American uh, consumerist market or, rather than the consumer demand that it's that women are using belts for so long.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and we really haven't gone back from there. After the Stay Free was introduced, we had Stay Free pads and we have tampons. Yeah. And today that's we that. have period panties. <laughs> so that's actually what I want to talk, end with today is talking about menstrual management, mm-hmm. what options women have. And in your opinion, is this still a field, you know, now that you know we've covered the whole history, is this still a field that can be innovated? I'm hoping that you can speak also to the fact that despite all the strides we've made, there are still places in this world where period's including in our country, are um including in America, are still stigmatized. They keep women from attending school and getting jobs, et cetera.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think potentially there are there's room for innovation in the products themselves. But what I'm much more interested is sort of innovation and in how they're advertised and innovation and in how available they are. So right. as you mentioned, um, you know, there are millions of women in this country and hundreds of millions worldwide who cannot afford menstrual products. And we need to be a little bit more cognizant of how that affects their lives and things like access to education, access to jobs, access to opportunities that they otherwise might be able to take up. But if if they feel like they cannot enter into those public spaces because they don't have menstrual products, that's going to be a giant impact so some of that is right access to these products, which are not cheap, which often have tax um, put onto them. So there's a lots of other sort of wit laws that could be interesting about removing that, subsidizing them. But also I think it's also about the stigmatization, as you mentioned, that we still have. I mean, if you look at even a modern day a Kotex ad or tampon ad, it's still about hiding it, making sure that nobody knows you're on your period. God forbid you should use a red liquid in the commercial, right? Because we all know that menstrual blood is this horrible, dirty thing that you don't even (laughs) want to portray. And
0: it's also blue. Right, exactly. So you
2: use a blue liquid that is very, that is, you know, obviously thinner also than menstrual blood. Um, So the sort of reality of menstruation is still seen as something that is so, so taboo that that's, you know, a reason why even if you don't have a menstrual product, you feel like you cannot leave your house because, You know, horrible things are going to happen to you if somebody knows that you're on your period. And I mean, certainly uh, for adolescent girls, the idea of, of someone in your seventh grade classroom seeing a blood spot on your shorts, that is tantamount to sort of, you know, social suicide. And so... I think there's a lot of places that we can work on change. Um, and I don't necessarily think putting all our energies into innovative products is the way to do it. And um, if and if in- listeners are interested, there's a lot of organizations that you can support that help provide free menstrual products to um, women and girls, both in the U.S. and then worldwide as well.
0: Yeah, there's actually an incredible documentary called Period, End of Sentence that just won an Oscar, I think, mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. It was a Kickstarter-funded campaign to bring Um, basically these machines to um, remote villages in India so that these women could find jobs essentially creating menstrual and selling menstrual products within their communities. So Mm -hmm. um, really incredible stuff happening out there. Shannon, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, Cassidy. I had
1: so much fun. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Cass, this really is a fascinating topic and so much one that we can, or at least half of us can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> you briefly mentioned period panties, but they have grown into be a game changer in an industry that's latest innovation
0: before this was the adhesive pads of the 1970s. I mean, that was almost 50 years ago. Right, and of course pads and tampons have developed over time to become better versions of themselves, but companies such as Thinx, Nyx, and Luna Pads are revolutionizing the industry with underwear that absorbs period blood and can be washed and reworn. Luna Pads also makes period boxers for trans men. I did not know that. That is very cool. And that is not all that's happening. Companies like Lola
1: are producing organic products and encouraging ingredient transparency to help make the menstrual management industry environmentally sustainable.
0: And again, I highly recommend, cannot recommend it enough, checking out the Oscar-winning film, Period, End of Sentence. It's streaming on Netflix and well worth the watch. There is also a fantastic video on YouTube by Lur Magazine that's a a video representation of a 100 years of periods. So, check that out too i think that does it for us today dress listeners may you consider
1: your options in menstruation management next time you get dressed
0: remember to tune in this thursday for the latest edition of fashion history mystery where we address questions from you our listeners we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram
1: at dressed underscore
0: podcast, where you will find images
1: accompanying each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle.
0: And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dressed. That's teepublic.com forward slash dressed. Special thank you to Tony and the New Mexico branch of iHeartRadio. And as always, thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you soon.